Hello and welcome to Politicast. Politicast question time. Today I'm joined by Alice, who will be asking me some questions that you, the listeners, have sent in. So Alice, what's the first question? Given the state positions on EU, trans rights and tuition fees, do you think that Keir Starmer is taking the younger progressive vote for granted? I think Keir Starmer's main goal has to be to win the next election. It's, you know, you, you can't make any policies if you're not in power. And Keir Starmer, if he wants to make policies, he has to get in power. And we saw in the 2019 general election with sort of the quote-unquote red wall seats, Labour made, sort of had massive losses. And, I th- and you know, the reason that gets thrown about is that Labour weren't clear enough on their Brexit policies. You know, these more socially conservative voters perhaps felt like Labour were maybe too socially um, progressive or that they were too sort of Westminster or London focused. They perhaps felt that they were sort of wanting to, you know, stealthily rejoin the EU, that they weren't respecting Northern voters. And I think the Conservative sort of hardline stance on Brexit, which was, you know, we've got Brexit and we're going to get it done, quite appealed to those people. And Keir Starmer, if he wants to win the next general election, has to win some of those seats back. And I think that certainly from the sort of left of Labour and from more progressive young voters is a bit of a frustration with Keir Starmer because in some senses it feels like, you know, he he just assumes, well, they're not going to vote for the Tories, they're going to vote for me. So I need to do as best I can to appeal to those voters because these people are going to vote for me anyway. So... In a sense, I do feel like he's perhaps taking the young vote slightly for granted, and this will be interesting to see how he moves forward with that to the next general election. Okay, next question. Is Kistama actually electable, and is he leaving it too late to go on the offensive with his campaign? I think it's an interesting question, because I think, certainly compared to the Tory Prime Ministers we've had, you know, we've had Theresa May... We've had Boris Johnson, we've had Liz Truss, and we've had Rishi Sunak. And I think, certainly compared to all of them, Kistama seems a much better fit for Prime Minister. But I think what needs to happen now, before a general election, is he needs to go, this is what my Labour Party looks like, this is what my government would look like, and these are things that I will definitely follow through on. Because if he doesn't do that, then there could be just a problem of, you know, he's just the anti-Tory vote and rather than Labour winning the majority like they want to they may face a hung parliament or they may not even win enough seats off the Conservatives to become the biggest party so I do think he needs to do some work with the British public to go this is who this is you know these are things that I will do as leader and I promise you that. Who do you prefer Rishi Sunak or Theresa May? Um, I don't think I'm allowed to say neither. Um, who do I prefer? I'd probably say Theresa May. 
Um, with Theresa May, there's quite often this image of her as somebody who's a bit boring and a bit out of touch. But something I liked about Theresa May was I genuinely thought that her policies and the ideas she presented in Parliament and the things she said as leader of the Conservative Party were genuinely things that she thought. And I feel like there's been a problem with Johnson, Truss and, to an extent, Sunak, and this is why I don't like Sunak quite as much as Theresa May, where there are a lot of occasions where I feel like they're not saying what they honestly think, and they're either, you know, reading off a prepared script almost of statements that they have prepared, like stock statements or party lines to respond to questions, or they're just trying to say what they think people want to hear, or they're using sort of dog whistles to appear to to sort of appeal to more extremist voters. I think with Rishi Sunak, he's trying to create this image of himself as a lot more sensible a politician than some of the people that come in the past, and somebody that's a bit more in touch with the British sort of public consciousness. But even that, I think, is a bit of a rouge, you know, somebody who's worth hundreds of millions of pounds, potentially billions of pounds when you look at him and his wife's net worth, somebody that spends thousands of pounds heating his private swimming pool. If he wants to win the next general election, he needs to show the British people that he's actually willing to listen to them. You know, it'd be helpful to just know whether or not he has any working class friends at the moment, as he so eagerly told us that he didn't when he was younger. Should party manifestos be contractually binding? I do think politicians need to be held to account a lot more in terms of promises they make. And whether that be making manifestos a bit more contractually binding or having a look at the way that politicians present information in Parliament and the way we look back on things that they've said to perhaps a strengthening of rules around lying... If we want to restore a bit of faith in democracy in the British electoral system, there needs to be a, a bit of a look at what politicians are saying versus what politicians are doing. Is Kirstama the lesser of two evils, and what kind of leader would he actually be? Again, I've sort of talked a lot about actually winning the election in the first place, and I think that is Kirstama's main goal. Sort of, but the thing that I'm hoping, and the thing that when I spoke to David Evans, who's the General Secretary of the Labour Party a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with him about, which is, are we going to see a bit more positive action from this party? And he indicated that we would. So I'm hoping in the next 18 months, perhaps before a general election, we'll see a bit more positive action. I think we've certainly seen a lot of positive action in the things that Keir Starmer's indicated will be his NHS priorities, which is reducing the three biggest killers, heart problems, cancer and suicide. I think those are really positive things to identify that we need to reduce. And I think if he gets into government and fulfills them, that'll have a really positive impact on the NHS. What are your opinions on the expansion of the ULAS? Do you think potential harm done to motorists outweighs the environmental benefit of the policy? I'm going to sound a bit annoying here when I talk about ULES because it's something that really winds me up. Especially when I hear the Member of Parliament for Orpington, Gareth Bacon, talk about this. 
when he just goes on and on about you, Les. I think it's perhaps 4,000 deaths a year from respiratory-related problems to do with pollution in London. You have a lot of children growing up now with underdeveloped lungs. You have older people who are being affected by the air quality in London. And I think as well as the cost to the people that are living in London, there's also the cost to the future people that will be living in London and the future generations. And I think when you're in power, there are some points where you have to make tough decisions today to have a better world in the future. And I think that certainly a lot of climate policies will have to be along those lines where in the short term, elements of them might seem harsh, but the long-term benefit will vastly outweigh that. And I think a lot of the problems that people have identified with ULES, such as low-income drivers and people travelling in, are covered for me by the scrappage scheme. 110 million has been sort of allocated for motorists to be able to scrap their old cars and still be able to have reliable personal transport. There's been a lot of work to raise awareness of the scheme. There's a free check to see if your car complies with ULES. You know, 90% of those cars actually already apply. So it's not as much of a problem, I think, as people are making it out to be. But I definitely think that the London government needs to do a lot of work to make sure that everyone who needs access to a new personal motor vehicle gets that access which I think is something that, you know, almost in a way the anti-ULES campaign and bringing attention to the fact that people need to check if they their car is covered by ULES. And, you know, we've seen that there's been, I think, 6 million visits to the free ULES website, which is something that I think is really positive as people are making sure that they know whether or not their car is ULES compliant and then applying for this scrappage scheme, which I think is a really positive thing that Steve Cons put in place. And I hope that a conserv- the Conservative government can support the scrappage scheme with allocation of budgets, as I do think it's a really important thing to protect the air quality in London, not just for the children and adults and older people living there today, but for the children, adults and older people of the future. Okay, last question. Out of the Prime Ministers that Britain has had in the 20th and 21st centuries, who would you say is the most attractive? Oh, it's a tough question, this. I don't, I don't know if this is a bit of a an odd choice, but I'm going to go for sort of a young David Lloyd George. I think the moustache worked quite well for him. I think he sort of had a bit, a bit of that sort of commanding look about him. I think, you know, he had quite nice eyes. You know, particularly awful haircuts for the time he was in you know i don't think we've been massively blessed with sort of the most handsome prime ministers but i do think if sort of i had to pick one i'd probably say david lloyd george is my pick dear listeners this was politicast i'm sorry for your ears and hope to see you next time (laughs)